Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We're going to conclude our study this series in talking from the original theme, God is with us. And today we will conclude that study. We began... In lesson one, Brother Bird spoke to us about believing God's plan even when we don't understand God's plan. Brother Rayleigh followed him and spoke to us and reminded us that when those plans are being carried out, that God is with us through every up and every down of life, every valley and every mountain. And then last week, Brother Wayne Williams followed him and told us one more time that God knows the way that we take and he understands where we are and that he orders steps for righteous people. And so for this final chapter, this final uh, iteration of what we are discussing this series, we'll talk to each other about beauty from the broken. Beauty from the broken. It's, it's something to know that and something to be thankful for that God knows how to take broken things and make them whole. He also knows how to take the things that come to us in life that are just part of life and turn them, even though the enemy might try to use those things for evil. God knows how to take those things and turn them for our good. We'll take our text this morning from the book of Genesis, chapter 45, and if you've noticed, these screens are blank and so I hope you brought your Bibles with you this morning because we're not going to have our confidence monitor. We won't have our confidence monitor in the second service when we sing, and so you can point that finger right back and say, I hope you know the words to the song in Jesus' name. Genesis chapter 45, we'll read verses 7 through 8, and then we'll skip to Genesis 50 and read verse 20. The Bible says, and God sent me, this is Joseph speaking to his brothers, and God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. And in verse 20 of, of chapter 50, this is Joseph again he says, but as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. If you remember last month, I'm sure you remember every word, we ended our study last month with a story, an excerpt from a biography from a, from a woman named Corey Tinboom. We'll begin this study today and we'll bookend this and bring everything to a culmination 
with another excerpt from her life. Corey Ten Boom was sick with the flu on the day a man came to their small watch shop and insisted on speaking with her. Corey and her family were sheltering Jews from Hitler's Nazis. Corey later recalled there is an old Dutch expression. You can tell a man by the way he meets your eyes. This man seemed to concentrate somewhere between my nose and my chin. The nervous Dutchman told Corey that he and his wife had been sheltering Jews as well, but his wife had been arrested and he needed money to bribe a police officer to get her released. Torn and uncertain, but unwilling to chance turning him away empty-handed, Corey turned and told him to return in an hour and a half and she would have the money. But instead of the Dutchman, the Gestapo arrived to raid their house and arrest Corey's entire family. Later in the work camp prison of Voot, Corey found out that the man who had come into their shop on that day was a man named Jan Vogel. He had been collaborating with the Germans since the day of their first day of occupation. In her book, The Hiding Place, Corey wrote how she was feeling in that moment that she realized. Flames of fire seemed to leap around that name in my heart. I thought of father's final hours alone and confused in a hospital corridor. Of the underground work so abruptly halted, I thought of Mary Itali arrested while walking down the street and I knew that if Chan Vogel stood in front of me now, I could kill him. This man, one of their own countrymen, had betrayed Corey, her father, her brother, her sister, and everyone that had been helping. It must have felt impossible to believe anything good could come from such evil circumstances. But the story was not over. Evil circumstances landed Joseph in a pit and in a prison. The evil intentions of his brothers sent him into a pit into slavery. The evil and, and, and covetous intentions of an adulterous woman sent him into a prison. He was completely and utterly blameless in every situation that befell him. It would not even be an accurate statement to say that the punishment didn't fit the crime because there simply was no crime to be had. But nevertheless, notwithstanding the providential hand of God and the intent of that man, Joseph, to serve that God with all his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind and strength, every single time pulled him out of those situations ultimately. It's here in Genesis chapter 45, and we will, we will cover the, the last few chapters to the end of the book of Genesis in the, in the life of Joseph. But here in this chapter 45, we begin to see more clearly the hand of God as he is drawing the weft and the warp threads of this story closer and closer together. We see the over and the under. We see the ins and the outs and the ups and the downs begin to culminate. It's here that Jacob's family is now in need as the famine in the land of Canaan rages wild. Jacob hears that there is food supply in Egypt and he sends his sons there. 
here now, there is a dynamic shift. Whereas before, the dominant band of brothers were once so confident of themselves, they now find themselves despondent and doubtful. The suspense is the suspense of the story begins to build as these two worlds are careening headlong into themselves with an uncertain reunion, neither of which are aware of. Upwards of 20 years has passed. A decade and a half since his coat was stripped so violently from him and he was thrown into a well and sold to a company of Ishmaelites. But now... The dynamic has shifted. Now we don't see him in the pit or in the prison. Now we see him at his zenith. We no longer see him as a submissive child. And we no longer see him as an impressionable teenager. Think of where he spent his adolescence and into his adult, young adulthood. Just think of where his mind would have been shaped, the things that would have been going on around him. Let's not forget where he grew up. He he lived his formative years in a prison as a slave, and now he's in the palace. And so the years have 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 no doubt changed him. If we just look at this from a a simplistic view, it's changed him on the outside. He's no longer the young man that they once knew. He's aged, and perhaps his countenance has even changed with that. And now, along with his royal garments that he has on him, his brothers simply do not recognize him. But Joseph recognizes them. He knows exactly who they are. He knows exactly what they have done. It's here that we see him at the pinnacle of his power. Now let me just pause here and say this. There are two things in this world that will reveal the character of a person, and that is pressure and power. That's the two foremost things that will reveal what is inside of a person, pressure and power. Pressure presses what's inside out while power inevitably brings that to the surface and pulls it forward. And so for the past few lessons, we've seen the pressure that Joseph has been through, the pressure that has revealed him and who he is, but now he's faced with something different. Now he's faced with power. And it's here that we begin to see the full circle as his brothers bow before him, vulnerable, just as his dream had predicted unto him. It's here in this moment, the power that was within his reach. It's in this moment that he could have, and some would say very very well within his right to do, he could have revealed himself right then and there, And he could have exacted revenge on them right then and there. Let's think about where he came from and now where he is. The Bible says that he was second to no one but Pharaoh. And so it is absolutely plausible to say and to see that that Joseph was surrounded by men who would carry out his command in a moment's notice. Retribution was well within his reach and he could have dropped that hammer 
He could have dropped that gavel in that very moment and they would have been wiped off the face of the earth by sundown. He was surrounded by men who would carry out that very command, but he didn't do it. Now, some would say that over the next few verses that what Joseph did do was somehow some form of punishment, some form of get back, if you will. Some would say that he punished them by speaking to them forcibly, calling them spies and accusing them of nefarious acts. But what really that means is that Joseph maintained his anonymity by speaking to them from his position of authority. He was not going to exact revenge, but what he was not going to do is allow himself to become vulnerable just yet. He wasn't going to remove that callus just yet because he needed to understand some things and he needed to find out where their hearts were as well. He changed. He had no idea where they had been for the last two decades. And so anyone hearing this could, could, could relate with this, couldn't hold that to his charge for him to not reveal himself and to just to keep himself guarded for a few more moments. These are the same men that could not even speak peaceably to him. Family dinners around the dinner table were, were, were just just inundated with insults and, and hard speech because they couldn't even look at him without going after his character or trying to say something about him, his nefarious acts, his, the fact that he was favored by his father. They, they could not even speak peaceably to him and now they're kneeling before him. He knows who they are. The same men that stripped him of his coat and threw him into a well and told their father that he was killed by a wild animal. And so he sets out on a series of tests to them. Test number one. He accused them of being spies. And he held them in prison for three days. And then he sent them on their way except for Simeon, whom he held in prison as a hostage until they brought back Benjamin, Joseph's younger brother. Furthermore, he restores the money that they had paid him and the nation of Israel for the food that they had bought. He restores it to them without them knowing, puts it back in their luggage, and that really begins to work on their minds. It begins to make them feel uneasy as to what may be going on here, a bit paranoid. The men return to their father, and they, re they rehearse to him what has happened now Jacob is is confident that if if he if he allows them to go back if he allows Benjamin to go back with him he will lose son number 2 and so reluctantly he holds them there they eventually inevitably run out of food and Jacob reluctantly sends them back to Egypt for more and now Benjamin is in tow but this time Joseph receives them just a little bit differently Instead of putting them in prison, he freed Simeon, invited all of them back to his house and shared a meal with them. Test number two. The next day, he sends all of them on their way. He sends them back to Canaan. But this time, he restores their money and he places an extra little bit of a souvenir in Benjamin's sack, which is his own silver 
cup. He then waits for them to get out of town and then sends his servant to run them down and accuse them of theft. Confident these men are that they have stolen nothing. The brothers assure their, this servant in Genesis 44 and 9, with whomsoever of thy servants it be found, both let him die and we also will be my Lord's bondmen. And lo and behold, the sacks begin to come down off of their, their burdened mules and they open them and there's the cup in Benjamin's sack. All the fears of Jacob unbeknownst are coming true as Benjamin is now being withheld. He is destined to die to send his other brothers into slavery. And so devastated, the brothers return to Egypt to face their punishment. And what Joseph discovers now is an entirely different group of men. They enter into his presence differently than when they left. They come to him with rent clothing. Their countenance is low and perhaps even their eyes are bloodshot from the stinging tears that they have had fallen all the way back to Egypt and they plead for his mercy. Judah, the man who, 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 who was at the helm of selling him to the Ishmaelites, Judah, the one who was the ringleader about getting rid of him, now Judah is offering himself in place of the boy. And so Joseph now knows that what he did was the right thing to do, to test their hearts, to see where they are, because what he knows now is that real change has occurred. Real remorse has altered that hard, once hard exterior of what he once knew of his brothers, and their hearts have changed on the inside. Now one could only speculate, one could only surmise what may have happened had the response been different or had Joseph immediately given his identity away. Uh, uh, one could only speculate what would have happened, but what we have to go off is, is what Scripture has for us. We cannot afford to speculate, but what I will do is go one step forward. We cannot allow, and what we cannot afford to do is look at this in a one-dimensional form or a, a, a standpoint of singularity rather than looking at these in its totality. We cannot afford to look at this one instance of, of, of what's going on in this moment or even look at everything as a series of separate parts, but we must look at the story in its own entirety and totality. It is one single, well thought out plan that is deeply laid and constantly and consistently connected. Let me say that again. This is, this is speaking to us here today. We cannot look at one simple, one act, one thing that is going on and just look at that from a one-dimensional standpoint. But what we must do is look at this as one single, well-thought-out plan that is deeply laid and consistently connected. What we see in this story 
is not the revenge of one toward another or deep hurt or harbored ill will one to another, but what we see here is a beautiful picture of humility, a right response, and true confession. Because hear me, the ultimate goal that Joseph had was to reveal himself to his brothers. That was what he set out to do from the very beginning. And I don't want to get too far ahead of myself this morning, but if there is one thing that God has set out to do from the very beginning is that he would like to reveal himself to humanity. And so the ultimate goal that Joseph had was to reveal himself, to make himself known to them. And while he's testing them, God is testing him. In fact, God has been testing him through the pit, survived to be a slave in Egypt, the rise and the fall into and out of the house of Potiphar, further decline into the prison and now his ascension to the palace of Pharaoh. From the beginning, from the very first moment that God laid that dream in his mind, in his sleep, God has been testing him and God has been divinely orchestrating through everything, through everything that has befallen him, God has been planning all the way through the beginning to the murky middle of all that has befallen him. Even in this very moment, God is testing Joseph and Joseph reveals himself and reveals his identity. Genesis 45 and 1. Then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him. And he cried, cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. And he wept aloud and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph. Does, doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. It's in this moment that confusion most likely metamorphosed into terror. It's in this moment that now they know who he is. They're putting everything together. They're starting to connect all the dots. This is the man that we throwed into the, into the pit. This is the man that we pulled out of that pit and sold to a band of Ishmaelites that took him off into the sunset and then went back and told our father that some wild animal had taken. This is the man that has lived all these years. We thought we'd never see him again, but now he's standing before us, revealing himself to us. They must have thought the sword is about to fall. Can I just pause here for a minute. We've all walked astray. We've all gone asunder. We've all walked to the left and to the right and we always thought that if we come back to God that we would somehow be, be punished or somehow be just taken off the face of this earth but what did we find when we came back to him? We found his arms open wide saying come home. I am your father. Yes, 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 yes. 
Of course they would have thought that the sword was about to fall, so much so that they could not even reply to his question. But what they heard next must have sent shock waves of calm through the room because Joseph said unto him, come near to me, I pray you. And they came near and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me hither. You see, it was with careful kindness that Joseph reassured his brothers of the absence of resentment that was in his heart with the absence of ill will that was toward them with words that were loaded with love and with mercy he admonished them not to be angry with themselves but what is even more remarkable is what he said next he said for God did send me before you to preserve life Joseph realized and Joseph understood and he articulated in the moment something that we must all here right now get a grasp upon is that God's plan, God's vision for us, let me say it like this, God's vision for you and the things that you must walk through to get there are much greater than any plan that you could ever devise on your own. I want to take the easy way. I want to take the easy road. But hear me today. There is no plan greater. There is no vision greater than what God has for us. And for whatever we have to walk through, we must embrace his plan. And so can I tell you here this morning that regardless of your past, no matter what you're dealing with or what you're going through or what you might encounter in your future, we must not, we must not lose sight that God knows all. He knows the end from the beginning. We might not understand and we might not know the exact measurement. We may not always understand what the Lord is doing. After all, that must be by design. But Romans 11 33, I say it again loudly. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. We might not ever know what is going on in the background or to the left or to the right, but what we can always be confident in is that God knows all he cares for all and he will see you through every circumstance, through every trial and every storm I reiterate again the words of the apostle Paul and confidently say and we know, we know we don't think, we don't just think about this but we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called, the, uh, the, the called according to his purpose. But I'm thankful this morning that this is not all wrapped up in these 66 books. But I'm thankful that I can stand with a group of people today that know this. They're, they didn't just read this out of a pamphlet, but they know this. It's not all bound up in scripture. We can bring this to the current. We can bring this to where we are right now. And we can say with great confidence that we are standing with a great cloud of witnesses that can attest to the fact and the testimony that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delighteth in his way. 
though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. You can quote it with me. I have been young and now am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. And so I might not understand the why and I might not understand the how. After all, he said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts your thoughts. And so I might not get the why. I might not see the how, but what I can do is rest assured that God does not sleep and he does not slumber and he is always thinking and he is always working toward my best interests. Come on, let's clap our hands and thank him for his great and faithfulness. So at this point, in this point of the narrative, there's five years of famine. Five years of famine left according to the prophetic dream that Joseph interpreted. Joseph knows that a constant back and forth between Canaan and Egypt is not a logical long-term plan. And so he sends his brothers back to Canaan with provision enough to then bring his father back to Egypt. This is very important to understand. Joseph now and Jacob are finally reunited. After nearly two decades since Joseph was sold into slavery, after spending some time, some much needed quality time with his father, Joseph prepares Israel for the audience with Pharaoh. Very important to understand that Joseph rehearses what he should say. He informs Pharaoh that the occupation of the family are herdsmen. He tells Jacob to back that up. He tells Jacob to go before him. Thy servants are herdsmen. This ensures the fertile pasture land of Goshen as their habitation. It was there that Israel became a great nation. It was there that Israel was separated from the plagues that that Egypt would indefinitely go through. It was there that they became and entered into the further and greater divine plan of God. And what we see is that plan working out in real time. In process of time, Jacob nears death. He calls his sons together and blesses them before passing away. He blesses Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And then he gathers the rest of his sons around his bed and prophesies over them. Joseph had him embalmed in Egypt and then all of Jacob's sons traveled back to Canaan to bury him in the cave of Machpelah along Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob's own wife, Leah. And now here we come to another bend in the road, another crux in this story. That familiar feeling begins to creep back into the minds of their elder brothers. Fear of reprisal of their past threatened the confidence that was once given to them and forgiveness that Joseph 
it expressed. And so they send a messenger to Joseph with hopes of affirmation of his kindness, which gives way to the climactic statement in the saga of this entire story, Genesis 50 and 18. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we be thy servants. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. You thought it was evil that you were doing unto me. You thought it was something that was going to take me out of the picture. But God meant it. That doesn't mean that God somehow devised this plan. No, because life happens to all but God took what was meant for evil and he turned it unto his good. And I'm here to tell you to tell you that that is just what he does. That is just who he is. That is just our God. He's in the redemption business. Our God traffics in restoration. The Lord has the ability and the want to to take what something meant for evil and turn it for our good. Life and circumstances, time and chance, it happens to all people. Rain falls. It just falls. It'll hit the just and it'll fall on the unjust alike. But what I can tell you here today is that even though the enemy seeks to take those times and turn them into doubt and turn them into divide, it's the age old thing. It's to create doubt in God's word and divide man from his maker. But what he meant for evil, what he tries to take and, 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 and take circumstance over, God can reach in and grab a hold of it and make it good and for our good. If we will just put everything in his basket, if we will just put all of our trust in him, he can and he will turn it around. Whether I have a checkered past that the devil attempts to salt me with daily or whether I have some evil that has come upon me suddenly without cause, my main goal is to surrender myself to the will of God daily and trust him with every hurt, to trust him with every hang up, to trust him with every seeming hindrance that tries to attempt to circumvent my successful completion of the race that is set before me. And if we will do that, I'm telling you right now, God can take what's broken and he can make it beautiful. God can take what was meant for evil and turn it around for our good in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. And so the fact of the matter is this. We are all in some way broken. Every single one of us has, accept, has accepted this. Experienced in our lives some sort of damage. Physical, spiritual, emotional, you can fill in the blank. We've all been touched by some sort of of infirmity. You see, brokenness is just a part 
of the human condition. Brokenness is the direct result of the fallen nature of man. But I'm here to tell you today, I'm here to stand with confidence today in my own walk with God that brokenness is not the end of the story. After learning that a fellow Dutchman, Jan Vogel, had betrayed them to the Germans, Corey Ten Boom was so confused and so confused and so consumed with anger that she hated him. She could no longer lead those secret study meetings, those Bible study meetings she and her sister Betsy had been leading in the prison barracks. She sat on her workbench working blindly on German radio. She grew ill. She tossed and turned at night. Meanwhile, her sister Betsy seemed perfectly fine. Finally, Corey burst out to her one night. Betsy, don't you feel anything about Jan Vogel? Doesn't it bother you? She said, yes. Corey, it does terribly. But Betsy went on to say that she prayed for him every night, his, every time his name came to her mind. These are her words. How dreadfully he must be suffering, she said. Convicted, Corey pressed her face into her straw-stuffed mattress and prayed for forgiveness for the murder in her own heart, which she realized was a sin as bad as anything Jan Vogel had ever done to her. She prayed blessings on him and his family, and that night, for the first time since she had learned his name, she slept peacefully. Corey Ten Boom didn't know this was the first step in letting God take her brokenness and make something beautiful from it. She did not know that she and Betsy would touch untold lives with the gospel in the midst of, a, of the horrific cruelty of that concentration camp. She did not know that after the war, she would take down the wire, repaint the barracks of spring green, and transform a German death camp into a place of healing for Germans left homeless by the war. She didn't know that one day she would turn her own home once a hiding place for Jews into a refuge where Dutch people who had helped collaborate with the Germans, just like Jan Vogel, could find forgiveness and begin allowing God to put their lives back together. Can I tell you this morning as you stand with me, that and this is the power of surrendering your brokenness, your hurt, and your pain unto God this is the power of giving it all to him no matter what it is brokenness pain, hurt giving it to him you see he turns mourning to dancing you see he gives beauty for ashes He's the one that turns shame into glory and he turns graves into gardens and he is the only one who can. You may not see it now, but the things that have somehow befallen you will one day be a testimony of how God has turned your brokenness into absolute 
beauty. And so I wonder this morning for the next moment if you would lift your hands and you would lift your voices and whatever it is that you would surrender it to God and give him glory and honor and allow him to take what is broken and make it beautiful in our lives. Because if we will do what the man said, if we will just endure to the end, we will see the final act. Lord, we love you today and we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your promises, Lord. We thank you for everything you've done up to this moment. And God, we thank you in advance for what you're going to do in every single life here individually and us corporately as a body that is working for you, that is moving forward toward the mark for you, Lord. We give you praise and we give you glory and we give you honor in the matchless and mighty name of the Lord Jesus. Come on, let's clap our hands to the Lord. This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806 or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.